All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 5 tonight, and we're going to take a look at verses uh, 1 through 12, and then what we're going to do is next week, we are going to uh, take a look at the last paragraph, and we will finish the study. Two weeks from tonight, we will not have Bible study. That's the night before Thanksgiving, so we'll take a break, and uh, then we'll probably uh, do some devotional uh, thoughts around the Christmas season for a couple of Wednesday nights before we take a break and then pick up in a new topic after the first of the year. So that's kind of the plan of action that I have in mind. And as we come to James chapter five, we're building upon some of the material that came earlier in the book. And you can see by this slide, if, as soon as I share the screen, sorry about that, I have to share. Here we are. Okay, can you see that okay now? Can you see the PowerPoint? Yes, you can. Okay, good. Forgot to put that on. So um, in the midsection of the uh, epistle of James, some uh, of the themes have been, or been introduced already, such as pride and envy and selfishness. And a little bit of what we talked about last week was uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the idea that these things are not from God and that uh, they make for conflict between human beings and with God as well. And uh, we were looking at five practical applications that close out the book. We looked at two of them last week, how we are to speak of other people and how we are to make our plans or anticipate the future. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to take a look at the next two. What do we do with our resources and how do we wait for God in verses one through 12? And then next week, we're going to end the study by looking at communal prayer, accountability, and we're going to discuss a little bit about the prayer of faith, which is an interesting passage in James um, as he equates uh, the prayer of faith with Elijah and uh, the answer that he gave Elijah. So uh, that, that will take us some time to think about that. So tonight, what I want us to do is look at verses one through six first, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about different components of it. So let's uh, take a look and read verses one through six. James says, verse one, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fatted yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Okay, James, tell us how you really feel. Well, that's a pretty uh, powerful, straightforward type of paragraph, isn't it? So <clears throat> in these six verses, 
what we find is that he comes back again to a topic that he's already touched upon. You'll notice in the slide here, uh, I put that James applies this teaching to the issue of selfish employers robbing their employees through unfair wages so that they, may, they themselves might live luxuriously. And the second point is money and mercy are favorite topics for James to the point that he has discussed luxury and trials in chapter one, favoritism for the rich in chapter two, and helping those that are in need, both in chapters one and two. So he's talking here about robbing your workers. Now, this could be a pretty poignant discussion point of how this applies in our own day and age. You take major corporations like Walmart and, uh, and companies like that, that are worth billions and billions and billions of dollars and claim some of these individuals claim to be followers of Christ and yet uh, do not reflect their, um, their wealth in terms of helping their employees and, and um, you know, uh, their employees do not make much per hour, et cetera, et cetera. So again, a lot of what we see in our own contemporary society can also be found happening in the first century. And James is coming down on that. And basically he's going to, to describe uh, that there's a fate that is coming upon these rich oppressors. And he's gonna speak up on behalf of the poor. And ultimately he keeps pointing toward a coming uh, judgment and justice that will come on behalf of these individuals that have been waiting patiently for some type of justice to take place, uh, which they have not seen happen yet. So that's kind of the overview of verses one through six. We're going to break it apart here, but before I do, do you have some thoughts before we look at some of these individual verses? So in verse one, the question would come up, who does he have in mind? When he says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. And the question could be, is James talking to uh, secular business owners? And in this case, it's probably landowners because he's talking about the harvest here. Um, is he calling upon landowners in general to repent, or does he have specifically in mind other Christians that are not following the way of Christ and treating the poor like Christ would treat them? So the answer to that is divided. If, if you're an individual that likes to do reading uh, in commentaries about um, various books of the Bible, what you're going to find is uh, commentators on this particular verse are kind of split right down the middle. And um, so we don't know who he has in mind specifically. The one thing, whether they are Christian or not Christian, that they have in common is that they're well off, they're rich. They are individuals that seem to be gaining their wealth because um, they are taking advantage of other people. So this overly harsh paragraph, it seems to me, is something that is being used to awaken 
the conscience of landowners that are using and, abuse, and abusing those who are uh, the workers that take care of the fields and the harvest. So I put on the slide here and you can notice uh, down about midway that James has been strong in some of his words earlier, specifically in chapter four. Um, what we find here is that uh, maybe James is following kind of like a prophetic stereotype. So when you read the minor prophets in particular in the Old Testament, some of the major prophets as well, you'll find that some of them are quite harsh, and there's no one that's harsher that comes down upon injustice than Amos. And if you read the book of Amos, you'll find that he doesn't hold back either. But what all the prophets seem to have in common is calling upon people to repent. Now, repentance begins with a change of mind. Uh, but it also follows through with action. It follows through with making changes. So it seems as though James is furious that there is an unlevel playing field that people are taking advantage of. And um, since James is an early book, maybe this might tie in a little bit to remember in Acts chapter six when. Uh, there are some deacons that need to be appointed because there were certain widows, and probably these were the Gentile widows that were being overlooked in the distribution of food that they needed because they didn't have enough money, thus being widows, they didn't have a sustainable income. So I don't know if there's a connection there or not, but since this is an early book, I wouldn't hesitate to say maybe this is something that James has in mind across the board in this very early movement, the beginning stages of the church. And what we find is that he is calling upon leaders and to recognize where injustice is taking place. And he's calling upon landowners uh, to change their mind about the way they're approaching life, hoarding their resources being uh, they being re being refusal, giving refusal rather to helping other people. So um, thoughts on verse one there. Any any thoughts? Woe to you. Yeah, woe to you. Yeah, that's what it has that kind of prophetic overtone, doesn't it? Woe to you. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next couple of verses. So here's the warning of danger of what will happen to those who do not repent. And um, this is an interesting couple of verses, because when you think about it, 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 it cannot really be taken literally, uh, but it's figurative. And here's what I mean. So verse two says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Now, that's a possibility. Moss can eat the clothes, but look at the next verse. Your gold and silver are corroded. Now, of all the metals, <laughs> gold and silver are the least likely to rust and corrode. So it's interesting that those two things are chosen as kind of a symbolic uh, picture of 
something eating away at the at the very resources that they think will satisfy them. And he says in verse three, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. So if the previous uh, images are not literal, uh, are literal, this one isn't. Um, the idea of eating your flesh like fire, the very possessions that you have. So it seems to me what James is doing is speaking metaphorically here. And all of this is kind of a way of speaking to, to bring conviction upon those that are not doing right. And um, in the corrosion part of it, their corrosion will testify against you. It's almost like a testimony of guilt. And what I mean by that is if these individuals were to stand trial for the way they mistreated their workers, they would be guilty. And it's like a, um, a guilt, guilty sentence being pronounced in figurative and powerful language that your wealth will not be sustained, your clothes will wear out, your gold and silver will rust. But all of these things are images that are going to be kind of like a poison almost that eats away because sometimes people, when they do uh, make certain uh, advances and they succeed in life, they never really appreciate that success. They're always looking for the next level. And so um, that can be like a flesh eating fire that you're never content you're always consumed by the next thing. Um, and so tell me what your thoughts are in these couple of verses. Any thoughts there? Right. And I did put it, uh, Beth was talking about how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't store up your riches on earth. And I did put a cross reference there in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 and 20. So again, there is similar thought between James and Jesus, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Some other thoughts that you have on these couple of verses? I just have a thought about, um, about the fact of it weighing you down, like all the things I have that I don't need, and then even getting more, and then you have like so much stuff that like I used to live in Southeast Asia where people didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. And then moving back here, I was like, what is all this stuff? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it can be pretty convicting. To, um, and, I, and I think a lot of times we are not always aware of how much we're accumulating until, yeah. Until you need to make a move and you need to figure out what you're going to keep and what you're going to get rid of. And it seems as though we just have a way of keep storing up stuff yes. instead of giving away stuff that we don't need. Or you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think uh, a lot of times when you, when you are forced to declutter, you then really begin to see how how all of us have kind of a hoarding spirit to a certain extent inside of us where we keep things that we don't need, or we think that we're going to use later, but we never do. Um, right. that thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Some other thoughts on this. Okay, let's keep going. So in verses three and four, uh, here is kind of the primary accusation. Um, there's this idea of we're storing up wealth. Remember how I said uh, in, a, in previous Bible studies that uh, sometimes it's easy to sit on your security and, and you're not willing to be generous or take a chance or anything like that because what we own is our sense of security and, and our sense of safety. So the main accusation, it seems here, is the hoarding element. So you'll notice it says here in verse three, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. And then he applies this in verse four, when he says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out to you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So when I read this particular verse, what came to my mind was in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was being overworked, there was never enough bricks that were being made for the building of the cities of the Pharaoh and, and that type of thing. Uh, and what we find is that they began crying out. Now we know that that was a long period of time, approximately 400 years. Uh, what's interesting is that they begin crying out and then God comes to the rescue to deliver them out of that oppression. Um, that, that is the idea. But then I started thinking a little bit as well, and I'm gonna read something to you in a couple of moments that this might be drawing upon a, another Old Testament story. And I'm just going to leave it there for right now, because I'll come back to it after we look at verses five and six. But um, it, it seems as though this is kind of the idea of enough is enough. Enough is enough. There's been enough abuse of people that are trying to put food on their table and you're making it difficult and their cry is coming up to God who is the God uh, for the oppressed people. And, um, and so again, that's my take is that it just brought to mind the whole uh, Exodus narrative and uh, how God finally comes to rescue them from their being overworked and, um, you know, underpaid and, you know, being abused in their work environment. Some thoughts on these couple of verses here? Well, to me, it brought to mind more the Cain and Abel story where God's, okay, I'm feeling your thunder then. I'll be quiet. No, that's okay. You're, you're exactly right. And that's the other story I'm going to, I'm going to double back to right after verse six. Okay. But okay. Course, um, you're right. There's very similar language mm -hmm. that you're going to find in the Cain and Abel story as well. Good observation, Shelly. Excellent. Anybody else? Okay. Then let's go to the next slide. So there's almost kind of like an expanded accusation. 
as he moves into the next couple of verses, he talks a little bit about living luxuriously while the poor are being oppressed. And so the way I kind of see this section is it's almost as if James is piling one accusation up on top of the other. And um, as he does so, he begins to talk a little bit about it, their bloated approach to life. Look at the, uh, the language here, verse five. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. So notice the language here. It's almost as if they have been overeating and overfed to the point that they're bloated and they are ready to explode, basically. And you have fatted yourselves, the idea of hoarding all over again, uh, in the day of slaughter. Now, this is this is kind of militaristic almost in the way James talks about this, the day of slaughter. What, what does he have in mind there? Um, and you've condemned and murdered innocent men. Is he thinking literally here? Or again, is this an idea that your oppression, the way you've treated people is akin to murder? Uh, it's something that might not be taken literally, although it could be in some situations. Think about the drug trade and other things like that. There is extreme violence uh, that takes place with drug czars and other individuals that help them. You get in their way, they, they'll get you out of the way type thing. And um, here though, James says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. They're, they're not a threat to you. They're why are you treating them this way? And you almost get the feeling that, um, you know, there's almost the sense of kind of like a banana republic uh, idea here where, you know, you have dictators and authoritarian individuals that think do not think twice about getting people out of the way that might possibly prevent them from uh, living the excess and luxury that uh, they've grown accustomed to. So um, some thoughts there on verses five and six. So James, I think, would kind of almost tongue-in-cheek here be talking about not only systems in society that keep people oppressed, but the potential abusers and dictators and authoritarians that use people for their own end. So in his day and age, it would be the Roman Empire. That's who were keeping the Jewish people under wraps and overtaxing them and that type of thing. But when you think about the scriptures as a whole, the people of Israel experienced that with Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And um, is you fast forward uh, into more 
modern history, um, you find that they've always been a people that have struggled. And in light of that, there's always been people that have tried to use them and abuse them and, and that type of thing. And, um, and so they just have this patience and this perseverance. Uh, and that's what I think he is going to talk about in verses seven through 12, how to continue to persevere and to continue to thrive even in the midst of opposition. Any thoughts there? So I want to double back. Didn't he, or the, this was, wasn't this also sort of addressed when they were talking about community? <laughs> We have a doorbell ringing here. When they were talking about communion and people were being gluttonous during the communion and they were told to go to their eat at home and you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Are you thinking about the first Corinthians 11 passage where um, uh, there was not even equality Yes. In the congregation uh, yeah. in Corinth when they were taking uh, yeah. the Lord's table and stuff. And, yeah. And that was that was accustomed to some of the love feasts that came with communion. And there right. were certain people sitting in the corner that were eating and getting loaded yeah. with all that they could eat and others didn't. Have. So that, yeah, that, that could be a good reference. Other thoughts? Now I'm going to, I want to come to, and I'm just going to read this. And I just printed this out this morning. So I didn't have time to make a slide before I went on into work. There is a New Testament professor by the name of John Byron. He uh, teaches down at Ashland Seminary. And, um, he wrote an article that kind of was out of a book that he wrote several years back on the Cain and Abel story. And I found this fascinating when he applied the Cain and Abel story to this paragraph. So I want to just read this and then you, we can talk a little bit about it. But um, here's what he said in... It was an academic uh, article for uh, uh, Novum Testament, which is um, kind of a journal for New Testament scholarship. But this is what he wrote. He said, behind the statements in James 5, 1 through 6, is an echo of the Cain and Abel story. While it has been recognized that Abel served as an archetype for righteousness and unjust suffering, it is sometimes overlooked that Cain fulfilled a similar role. Beginning with the writings of Josephus and Philo and continuing through to the Midrashim, Cain was portrayed as an archetype for those who oppress the poor and the righteous for self gain. Just as James accuses the wealthy of using dishonest means to retain the wages of the poor, 
So also Cain was a custom of increasing his property and possessions through robbery and force. The enigmatic statements in 5.6 represent an indictment against the wealthy and declaring that they are guilty of the sin of Cain. Then he goes on a little bit later in this article. New Testament scholars agree that behind this text is a Jewish, is a parallel Jewish tradition which commonly treats the poor and oppressed as a collective symbol of righteousness. And then he references Proverbs 111 and Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 4. He says, there is an echo in this passage. The cry of harvesters reaching the ears of the Lord of hosts is similar to blood crying out from the ground in Genesis 4.10. Cain is representative of the people who oppress the poor and Abel as the representative of righteous individuals who suffered unjustly. Finally, later in the article, and it's a fairly lengthy article, he says, although Cain is not mentioned by name in this passage, there are several traits listed here that is part of an interpretive trajectory concerning Cain. And he lists four of them. A rejected offering. Number two, the crime of murder. Number three, depriving the poor of their property and wages. And number four, the claim that the oppression of the poor is analogous to the shedding of innocent blood. So I thought that was a fascinating take. Um, and again, it's kind of almost like a uh, his thoughts, because he wrote a whole book on the Cain and Abel story uh, as it applies to this reference here. So do you see it? Do you see that in this paragraph at all? Shelly does. She brought, uh, thought, uh, saw, the, uh, saw that connection. Okay, Brenda says it's a bit of a stretch. Okay, it could be, all right. So I just, I thought it was interesting uh, that what the way he's playing this out is the idea of later tradition giving, giving, how do I want to put this? Later tradition connecting certain things to certain figureheads. Does that make sense? So when all of a sudden Abel becomes kind of a, a portrait of righteousness and Cain becomes this portrait of a self-condemned man because of his mistreatment of other people, you might not see it in the text. In fact, I don't think you really see a lot of that in the Genesis text. What it does, though, is over the course of time, rabbinical literature and other literature begin to build a tradition that James may be drawing upon. Does that make sense? So um, if that is kind of a, how do I want to put this, an accelerated momentum that has gained over the centuries through commentators and rabbis and and that type of thing that maybe James has this in mind. Um, but as I told you earlier, I saw more a connection with almost the same type of feeling and the parallel in the life of the nation of Israel when 
they were the oppressed employees, if I could put it that way. They're really slaves in Egypt, but they were being used as the workforce to build cities such as Ramses and that type of thing. The thoughts there? Well, you can take, take that and chew on it a little bit if you want, or you can just forget about it. That's, that's fine. But I just thought I'd bring it up because I thought it was an interesting um, topic that emerged. So. It just the blood of your brother is crying out to the Lord. That's where I see the connection. Yeah, so what Esty said is the connection she sees is, of course, when Cain murders Abel, uh, God comes to Cain and says, the blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. And so this idea here is this crying out is related to the ground as well, because it's the cry of the harvesters that have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, verse 4. A little bit more connection there? Yeah, maybe, kind of, connection, maybe, kind of, yeah. Okay, then we'll keep going. So now let's take a look at verses 7 through 12. Now, here's his advice based upon what he's just said. Verse seven, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, and as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed, uh, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. So that's the paragraph in, in as a whole. So again, this is touching upon a theme that came earlier in the book, the idea of suffering, uh, kind of a broad topic. Um, and he's ending this epistle by resurfacing this same theme again. But what's interesting is in this paragraph, in verses 7 through 12, there's an interesting connection to the expectation of Christ's second coming. And that when Christ comes again, justice will come upon the earth. Now, in verses 13 through 18, which we'll look at next week, it, um, I put here on this slide, the focus is on God's current presence and availability to his people, and therefore the key ideas that are stressed are prayer and community. But in verses 7 through 12, it's interesting that there's this connection that um, be patient because in the end, God is going to send his son and his son will bring 
about justice on the earth. So that's kind of the, the, big, the big picture in the paragraph and we'll break it down. So verses seven and eight, he says, be patient and stand firm. And it seems to be the key of the, to the passage where he's talking about patience, that justice does not always necessarily come in, in our time uh, or in our uh, expectation. But what we find is that in this time element, whether we see it or not, does not mean that it's not coming. It means that it will come about when Christ comes again. So uh, if James, you'll notice on the handout there, is aware of those who are rich exploiting other people for, for financial gain, is probably aware of those among his readers who have been the ones who have been exploited. So what he encourages them to do is continue to be patient. Now, that's philosophically and theoretically correct. But practically, it's hard to put food on the table with patience. Okay? So it's interesting, the advice that James gives about judgment that is coming for mistreatment. But that does not necessarily mean it's going to correct the immediate problem if this employee, whoever this may be, and it seems as though it's farmers, you see the theme of harvest, um, if they can't make a livable wage and put food on the table and so forth. So what we might see in this idea of the second coming here, the Lord's coming might have both now and not yet to it. So there is a look to the future, but it's almost as if um, Christ and God is with us in the midst of this as we stand firm, especially verse eight, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. It's almost as if it's not far in the future, it's right here in the uh, near present. So he might be playing upon the fact that in the New Testament, a lot of the writers anticipated that Christ would return possibly within their own lifetime. Uh, here we are a couple of thousand years later, and what we find is that we're still anticipating uh, justice to come on the face of the earth in Christ's return. But the advice that is being given by James is the same either way, and that is be patient, stand firm, don't give up. Um, so do you have some uh, thoughts there, comment? Now he comes back. I think he's also saying like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, fine. I was, I was wondering if, do you think he's also saying like, let me handle it. You don't have to go um, for justice because I, you know, they're going to pay. In other words, you might yeah, not I, see it. Or, and I, I, I think that he does that now though, too, for us. Like we don't have to judge and, you know, get back at our boss or whatever, um, that he'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the implication here 
is that don't take justice into your own hands. And um, and I think that's applicable uh, both uh, then and now as well, that it's very tempting. Let's think about for a moment, a lot of the, a lot of the, the uh, shootings that happen in our day and age, a lot of them are disgruntled employees that want to take revenge out on uh, their company, their coworkers, or their boss. And so there's this idea of not being patient and allowing God to bring about justice in his time, but I'm going to take justice into my own hands. So um, yeah, that, that I think that's a very good connection that you're making, Kay. And I, I think it's very applicable to our own situation because as I've said before in our Bible studies, it seems as though we as human beings live within the myth of redemptive violence. And that is, if we can, if we can generate enough pushback, if we can generate enough power, uh, which leads to violence, then we can put everything to rights. And what I've often said is when we seek to use violence as a means to correct things, what would what often happens is just more escalation of the same. And um, maybe that's why Jesus would often say, go the extra mile, uh, turn the other cheek, that type of thing, because he knows what we're like as human beings. But there is a point where it goes off the deep end. And uh, I think in our own day and age, just the numerous shootings alone that we have seen over the course of the last 20 to 25 years is amazing how many of them are often connected to this sense of desperation and frustration. And of course, there's mental, um, there's probably mental things that are going on as well. People that play out this revenge in their mind, and then they act upon it. Um, but you know, it's a very applicable topic. And I just find it interesting that there is a connection between the work world and this anger that often can develop inside of a person. Some thoughts there? So he comes back again. He said this several times in this epistle, don't grumble, don't complain. Uh, and um, what we, I think one of the connections here might be, look at, look at verse nine again. He says, uh, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Well, what are they grumbling about with each other? Well, a lot of times grumbling and complaining is directed toward the top. And what I mean by that is looking to leadership and then complaining when that leadership isn't able to produce the type of results that you want. So you'll notice on your slide there, that says one of the great temptations during times of trial and suffering is to grumble and complain against other people. And I was thinking again, the nation of Israel, uh, how much um, complaining was directed toward Moses in his leadership. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. 
that type of thing. You can read that story. I give you some cross reference there in Exodus 15 and 16 and Numbers 14, 16 and 17. Um, and so it seems as though how many times in the Old Testament, um, sometimes there's judgment that God brings upon people who rebel against his chosen leader. And um, in, in the case of Moses, he has to intervene on behalf of them and intercede at times uh, because it, the text will say God's going <laughs> to, he's going to bring judgment on these, this group of hardened, hearted and stiff neck type people. So anyways, so the point of the paragraph is that those who grumble will experience discipline. <clears throat> and if we extrapolate that into from this day in uh, in the in the Old Testament to the New Testament, maybe what uh, James has in mind is he has the idea that uh, this judgment ultimately comes only in part now, but will be finalized at the second coming of Christ. Any thoughts or questions? When something is not going right, thinking that uh, if the universe is doing it this way, things will work out better. Whereas mm -hmm. mm -hmm. maybe the leader needs to listen to other people mm -hmm. and figure out that maybe they do have some good ideas. So, what? So, I doubt that you could hear online what Esty was saying, but she was saying that. Many times, people, uh, many people often grumble against leaders because they feel if they would take a different approach, there would be better results. And um, then she said, maybe, maybe there's some insight there that people bring that should be listened to that, um, and maybe that would reduce the element of grumbling amongst the uh, amongst yes. the the group so the yeah, mother he also says do not swear now this is interesting he says uh, above all my brothers do not swear now he's not talking about um, uh, profanity okay that's not what he has in mind here what he has in mind is the swearing of an oath. Now, why does he bring this up? Above all my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else, but your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. So again, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus touched on this. Uh, this is a, another similar topic. Um, maybe what this has in mind, and I'm guessing, uh, is the type of oath maybe James has in mind here is you're making certain promises that you never intend to keep. And you're doing so as a way of controlling a set of circumstances to your advantage. That's how I see it kind of connected maybe 
to the previous verses, um, he may have in mind people that make certain promises to people. And those promises, hey, I swear I'm going to get you a new computer or, you know, in the workplace, there's often promises that are made. And if you could really see the intent of the heart, they never have any true uh, intention to, f to carry through on those promises. So it's a way of kind of appeasing the workforce as long as you keep pumping out the results and thus being able to, uh, you know, secure the continued um, profit that your work is bringing to whatever the situation is. So um, that's how I kind of see this connection here. Don't swear by heaven or by earth or anything else. You know, how many times I swear on my mother's grave or whatever, that type thing. Yeah. Oh, my mother's grave, you know. Or... Yeah. So as you said, people oftentimes cover lies by making promises or swearing on my mother's grave or something similar to that as a way of, oh, well, he's or she is telling me the truth when they really aren't, you know, that type of thing. I'm sure all of us have had experiences where we've trusted another person's leadership, especially in the workforce, because that's kind of what this context is here in James, where the individual that is schmoozing us is doing so simply to continue to produce the results, but never really has the integrity of following through on what they have promised. I think all of us have probably had a taste of that at some point. I think maybe uh, some would take it to the extreme of saying, well, I cannot uh, take an oath in court because they're there. It says right there in verse 12. Okay. So what Esther just said is um, sometimes when people take the Bible very literally, but do not consider like this, the surrounding context, they might say, well, I cannot take an oath in court. I can't put my hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because it says right here in the Bible, not to swear an oath. And I think this particular thing has nothing to do with that type of setting, it has something to do with this employee-employer uh, relationship that he keeps talking about in this context here. And so, but, you know, there are people that will not take an oath in court to tell the truth because of a verse like this. Oh, okay. Okay. So what Beth was just saying is when she went over to the Friends Church for a while, that the way they interpret this verse is that you should not swear an oath in court. So that's an interesting application. 
you have some thoughts on this? Anybody? So did you mentioned, Beth, that in that situation, if somebody was to go to court, they would not swear, but they would use some other verbiage to say, I, I promise to tell the truth, but I'm not swearing, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Anybody else question, comment? All right, so notice there's three examples in verses seven through 11, and you'll, you'll, you can pick them out. Um, in verse five, he talks about the farmer, and then he talks about the prophets in verse 10, and then he talks about Job. So he, has, he uses three examples in this paragraph. And then he connects those examples to uh, some specific contextual uh, elements of the experience of those individuals. So first, the farmer, uh, he talks about the image of rain um, and, and ultimately God controlling the weather. So look at verse seven, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. So the idea of the spring rains was an anticipation of waiting patiently for what God would provide. And in most cases in the ancient Near East here, it's primarily the wheat and barley crops uh, in the late springs that, that he probably has in mind here. But the application is, as you observe the farmer, you too be patient you too stand firm because the Lord is coming near. So the Lord that's coming near is um, directly uh, a correlation to the spring and autumn rain that eventually comes that produces the crop. So um, I guess there's lessons to be learned. Uh, I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I'm some of you who have more farm-like experience there might be some lessons to be learned to observe the patience of the farmer and how they how they wait for their product to come to harvest and stuff like that. So might be some interesting observations that could be made uh, by observing that profession. Now the prophets are mentioned very quickly in verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who uh, spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, he's using that, I think, just very uh, generically. Uh, you think of the Old Testament, there's a number of the prophets, Isaiah, and especially Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, uh, where they were abused by the people, and they kept calling upon the name of the Lord, and um, some of you remember the study we did through Jeremiah several years back that Jeremiah wanted to quit a number of times. And finally, Jeremiah, when God commissions him a second time, uh, Jeremiah says, well, you know, if I, I curse the day that I was born, but 
if I don't follow through with what you put inside of me, it's like a fire inside of my bones. And so then he carries on in light of a lot of uh, arrest and abuse. And, and in some cases, some of the prophets were even martyred as well. But um, so he makes a quick mention of that. And then he spotlights Job. And he says in verse 11, um, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Um, Job is an interesting character in the Old Testament. And we have probably the most comprehensive poem about his life and his interactions with God over the course of 42 chapters, 42 chapters in the book of Job. And it's an epic, um, poetic and symbolic and uh, uh, a way of him dealing with all that he was going through when his friends are whispering in his ear to just admit that he has sinned and then God would take away his punishment. And Job insists on his uh, innocence. And he finally wants to get God in court and have God give evidence that he deserved this type of experience that he was going through. And God never actually tells Job why he went through what he went through. Um, so it's an ultimately a, a journey of faith on the part of Job. And I just love the end of Job. If you want to read a fascinating portion, read chapters 38 through 42, where God finally comes. He says, now, hey, Job, I'll, I'll answer your question, but you have to answer mine first. Do you know the way the world works? And he just lists animals and natural phenomena. And finally, at the end, Job goes, well, you spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And um, in other words, I shut my mouth. I don't know what I'm talking about. And um, so it's a fascinating book. And, and here James uses it as a way of highlighting. I mean, you've often heard of this little, this little line. Oh, he or she has the patience of Job. And that's kind of where this comes from. Some thoughts? comments you know, I was thinking of um like a uh, Elijah too is that right he prays for uh or he says it's going to rain and there's only this little small cloud but they have to wait days and days yeah. and uh eventually of course God does what he says he's going to do and you didn't have to worry <laughs> well and that's a great point that's the way he's going to end this epistle in fact with um with elijah and that very that very episode that you're talking about Kay. That, that's down in verse 17 and he talks about the prayer of faith that we'll talk a little bit about next week <laughs> but I that's ex that's exactly uh the example james wants to use is elijah
Anybody else have any thoughts or questions? Well, the way I the way I read that, yeah. So Mark is asking the question down in verse twelve when he says, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned." What does he have in mind here? Um, and I think, I, I think the yes is when you say something. Here's a figure of speech: Don't let your yes be no, and don't let your no be yes. In other words, mean what you yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, BS. That's right. Um, <laughs> No BS. That's right. No BS. That's a well, that's a good application because that's exactly what it is. People will use a lot of BS, right? Uh, to get their way. I think the condemnation here, I mean, if you want to connect it back to the Lord's coming, you can, but maybe the condemnation here is when you lie to other people so much and so often, eventually you get found out it comes back and people begin to understand you ne never really meant what you're saying that's why i take it i don't know what your thoughts are but yeah. okay folks any other questions that you want to raise or any other insights you want to give before we finish for the night That's my last slide there. So I'll stop the share. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else, we'll uh, finish here for tonight. Next week, we'll finish this little study we've been in and uh, we'll look at the last paragraph. So. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Hope to see you Thanks this so week. Much. Okay. I'll see you, you next guys. week. All right. Okay. Here. Bye-bye. Bye.